Hi, I'm Jack Webster, and I'm on staff here at Southeast Christian Church. It's my privilege to serve with our U.S. and international outreach teams. This conference uh, is really important to me personally, and I want to welcome you here. I hope God is encouraging you while you're here. I hope he's challenging you. I hope he's clarifying a calling for you. That's certainly what he did for me. Uh, My family's been a part of this church since 1983, but my wife attended this conference six years ago. And it's where God spoke to her to speak to me that I needed to go to some foreign land and eat really bad food and be really hot and miserable for a week. Uh, And I listened to her and uh, I went. And it's interesting how God spoke to me in a way there that I didn't seem to be hearing him here in the comfort of here. And it was there and many other trips where I was exposed to leaders and I saw things take place in the mission field that were new to me and really life-changing for me. So I hope that's what God's doing for you through this conference and through the interaction and the counsel of many. On one of those trips, I saw this man named Ben Holman, who will speak in a minute, and I, I almost felt silly, and he probably thought I was nuts, but I was just amazed at his leadership. I was amazed at what he was doing, and I remember Skyping my wife He probably doesn't remember this. I hope he's forgotten it. But he was sitting right next to me. I said, Linda, I'm by this really cool guy who really gets it. And it's just an encouragement to me to see this in action. And it reminded me of John 21, 15 through 17, where Jesus says, Simon, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord. And he said, feed my sheep. And Jesus said, Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Then shepherd my sheep. Simon, do you love me? Simon Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Then tend to my sheep or care for my sheep. You see, Jesus had just done this. He just said, hey, friends, cast your net over there. Hey, friends, come over here. He built a fire. He'd cook. He'd serve them. Jesus had just shown Simon Peter that he loved him, that he would shepherd him and he would care for him. That's what I saw Ben Holman doing with his team in Indonesia after after the tsunami. I saw a leader that was doing exactly what Jesus had modeled for us, and that was a huge encouragement for me. It was trips like that that led me into full-time ministry. So I'm very grateful to a God who has conferences like this and who puts us in the presence of men who have modeled the way on servanthood leadership. So please join me in a warm welcome for our fellow servant of Jesus Christ, Ben Holman. Well, good evening, everybody. And uh, what a great time of worship that was. Thank you for that uh, team. It took me back about 20 years to a winter in St. Louis. I was on a theological seminary campus, and one of our African students, actually a prince of a tribe, was studying on campus, and a blizzard was descending on the town. And he'd wandered from the dormitory, and he was standing by a creek bed on the campus, watching the storm. And as he watched the storm, his doormates went out to find out what was going on, and his words were these. Though my sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. He had never seen snow. 
And he stood there in amazement, understanding afresh what God has done for us. And indeed, that is what draws us together here tonight. For those of you who have called upon the name of the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. On a lighter note, my worst meal Uh, Jack was actually present, I think, when I sucked down a raw turkey egg. And it was one of those moments uh, where in the pedigree of dares, there are regular dares and then there are double dog dares. And that was one of the double dog dares that uh, I actually ingested that and can live to tell about it here. I also confess to my, my group over here that among the, uh, the, the bad meals, I had to go back to my childhood as well. You'll learn a little bit more about my family of origin, but my, my mother actually spent more time studying astrology than she did cooking, which was unfortunate in many respects. <laughs> and... You know those restaurants that say mom's home cooking? I don't go there. <laughs> Sad to say, poor old mom. I want to thank uh, Southeast Christian Church. You do a great service to the kingdom of God by hosting this conference. And then the Global Health uh, Missions team, uh, Will and your team, uh, kudos uh, to you. Thank you for extending the warmth of welcome. And I want to thank each of you for being here. Uh, all of us have different priorities, uh, busy things that crowd our schedule. And you've found a way to clear your calendar to be here. And... What you do in serving your local communities and then also the community around the world, I just have great admiration for and I appreciate. I also feel very safe here if there's a medical emergency with a speaker. <laughs> I'm feeling really good about that. Uh, I know that one of my good friends uh, is here somewhere. I haven't seen him, John Tanksley, who's one of my heroes, and appreciate how he has given his life and placed himself at risk. And there are others... I saw a former pastor, uh, Gil Odendahl, here, uh, and uh, Gil is a dear uh, friend, and I listened to many of his sermons, so Gil, now is your turn, and uh, Stan Dorr and other professionals that I have known uh, in the health industry and my Food for the Hungry family. There may be some alums here as well. I want to talk uh, for a moment uh, about even a personal transition. Uh, for 10 years, I had the privilege, the blessing, the awesome opportunity of being president of Food for the Hungry. And I left Food for the Hungry in August to become president of John Stott Ministries. And it's an interesting transition. As we talk about what God calls us to, I want 
my own journey to sort of sit in the backdrop, not as a main narrative, but just a narrative that that God has taken me through. And part of it was simply the sense of, after 10 years serving in an organization, I sensed I had contributed what God had wanted me to contribute here. And then I also saw a ministry opportunity and need, a much smaller organization, but that was moving in a very strategic way, equipping the global church. But we can talk about ministry like that, but there was also personal narrative as well. Uh, Some of you who know me know that uh, December of 1985, my wife was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And by the grace of God, uh, her health has been primarily sustained. But as we thought through the sustainability of our family and how I might minister to her. And we still have a 10-year-old at home. We also have a 18-year-old, almost 18-year-old, and an almost 16-year-old. And in this mysterious way, the sovereign God will take the needs of ministries but then see our personal needs. And I don't understand how God does it. But he wove a path for us to contribute, we pray, for the global church to be strengthened in a unique way. If you do have an opportunity to look at johnstott.org, you can learn about ways that we're strengthening the global church, equipping people to be leaders. Uh, Will, uh, directing the conference here, sent me an email just a couple of, well, a few weeks ago. He was in Egypt, and he had met someone who had received a scholarship for a Ph.D. in biblical studies who was leading the people of Egypt in biblical worldview. And I thought, yes, what a great thing to see God's kingdom strengthened. So as we begin tonight, I want us to think about maybe three parts that you may not have associated together. And those three parts are Micah the prophet, God's people, and the age of AIDS. Let me unpack what I mean by that by asking some questions. First of all, why Micah? I'm going to explain in my my first point, sort of Micah the person, not necessarily Micah the prophet, but Micah the person, and explain why I thought of you as I reflected on him. I think you may see some parallels, and I would want us to learn what Micah's journey was like and what might be a part of your journey. Why God's people? The church, his agency of bringing change and transformation to the world. We want to bring to our current situation, our current communities, our current opportunities to minister around the world. We want to see the agency of his church grow and be strengthened. It multiplies. It makes impact. 
And why the age of AIDS? We're not specifically going to talk about HIV and AIDS tonight, but I want AIDS to be part of the understanding of the fragility, the brokenness, and the opportunity of serving a world that's in incredible need in some ways that it would be representative of a world in incredible need. And one of the things I would like you to think about tonight is this. Just as you are called to missions, just as you are called to global outreach, would God also be calling you in a prophetic way to challenge the church in North America and beyond to reformation, repentance, and revival. Would God use you prophetically? Would you be willing to see that one of the roles as you reach out using your gifts and talents in health and medicine, that one of your roles would also be to speak repentance and reform to the church. And we'll talk about what that might mean because the cost will be high. Tonight we'll talk about Micah, the person. And then we're going to do a little bit of a survey of the book of Micah, not in a literal film, but if we were actually to make Micah the movie, I want to suggest some scenes that we would include in the movie, and we'll do a quick tour, scene by scene, in the church, in the, in the book of Micah, to give you a sense of the message of the prophet, but then also the drama involved with carrying that message. And then lastly, we'll look at Micah, the implications of that to our own lives. So Micah, the person, Micah, the movie, and Micah, the implications. And by God's grace, I pray that you would have an understanding, a sense of what it might be like to be a prophet in this age of AIDS, this age of vulnerability and fragility in our world. So Micah, the person, why did I think of you? Well, I thought of you because, interestingly enough, unlike the other prophets, there's very little vocational information about Micah in the book. He could have been in medicine or in health care. He could have been a farmer. He could have been a religiously trained person, but we really don't know. So you can almost fill in the blank, unlike Amos who farmed or unlike Jeremiah who includes a lot of biographical information, you can fill in the blank on Micah. So wherever you're coming from, wherever you are in the health industry, you can actually place yourself perhaps to understand part of who Micah is. 
But it goes further than that because there is a little bit of biographical information in the book. Micah of Morasheth. Morasheth is located maybe 26, 28 miles outside of Jerusalem. It was not a place of power. It was outside of the realm of government. It was outside the religious center. It was outside. But at the same time, Morasheth was a, a town that was a strategic place militarily. So as invaders came in to the land of Israel, Morasheth was one of those key places that they would go to gain advantage and to take strategic ground so that the invaders could gain on Israel. And so the commentaries and the information in the book of Micah itself believe that the fact that it's Micah of Morasheth that he himself was an eyewitness to some of the oppression and violence that had been visited on Israel. He was there to see the invasions and the violence and the ramifications of that. He was an eyewitness to terror. And sadly, he was an eyewitness to the religious elite and the governmental officials who hold themselves up in Jerusalem and protected their turf while the towns like Morasheth were pillaged. Micah speaks as an eyewitness. Now, I know some of you have served overseas. Some of you have been in places of poverty. Some of you have labored in places where you have images, sadly, of injustice and harm and illness. Well, Micah shares the role as an eyewitness. Being an eyewitness carries a burden. You know more. You've seen more. And as someone who has gone to Indonesia, someone who has seen the ravages of earthquakes in Haiti, the isolation of communities in Afghanistan, I know there are images that still flash in my mind of things that I've seen, and I'm accountable for what I have seen. It's believed that Micah prophesied for about 52 years. You heard a few of the staff members talk about their journeys with Southeast Christian Church. Many years and decades accumulated. Micah prophesied for 52 years. The commentators believe that Micah as a book contains nine sermons. Interesting Think back on your career, your experience. If you were to distill your life into nine messages, what would those messages be? Might be an interesting exercise. Those especially that are 50 plus like myself, we would have a few more accumulated messages. It might be interchangeable through the decades and years in our experience. 
And I would even issue an assignment to you. Reflect after this conference, what are the nine messages that you have? What are the nine messages that God has given you? I believe that God redeems our times. God redeems the experiences that he allows us to have. And out of that redemption is a sense of the messaging that he would call us to. I mentioned to you about my wife, Annette, and her diagnosis with MS. Part of the messaging out of who she is is that she went on a a journey herself to understand that her identity was not in her output, the volume of what she could produce vis-a-vis what another person could produce. After she was diagnosed her first year, she could make it after three months, maybe half a day in her job. Later in the year, she began her job, had an hour nap in the middle of the morning, worked a little bit more, another nap in the afternoon, worked a little bit more. Her output, not as much as her peers. Did that change her value in Christ? No. She had to come to this recognition that her narrative, who she was, was not based on how much she could produce. So what is it about your narrative, your history? The lesson from Micah and the other prophets is that these are human beings that God will not waste. And they're individuals that God will use. And so Micah also spoke to a context where leadership focused on self-protection. The leaders, religious and civic leaders of Israel, they focused on walling themselves up while people's land was taken and violated. Do you see any parallels in our own land of leaders who focus on promoting themselves or not dealing with the issues so that they can maintain position and comfort. And so that was the situation that Micah approached, a sense in which the civil society, the religious society, focused on maintenance and appearance, safety and protection. Micah, the person, we don't know his profession, preached for 52 years against that. And so what did he preach? Well, let's think for a moment about Micah, the movie. If we were to shoot this movie, what would the scenes be like? Well, if you Bear with me as we go through a little bit of a tour. Some of you will have Bibles, but that's okay if you do not. We'll look at a few scenes out of the book of Micah. Micah chapter 1, the first scene is a courtroom scene. 
The first room opens in the courtroom, and it's not good for the accused because the accuser is God himself. It says this in verse 2, Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth and all who, all who are in it, that the sovereign God may witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. And so a courtroom scene opens it up. It's far more serious than any of the other courtroom scenes you've seen. Twelve angry men, a few good men, the verdict, lots of courtroom movies out there. But this scene in Micah opens up in a courtroom in the accused is not some faraway land. No, the prophets primarily devoted their attention to the people of God. The people of God stand accused. And God is the one who brings the accusation. Now the content of that accusation is unpacked over the year or over the, the chapters. And inside those chapters we see a distancing of leaders from people who are oppressed. Well, if we go to chapter 2, interestingly enough, we move from a courtroom scene to a barroom scene. Micah is unusually direct and sometimes coarse in how he describes the situation of the people of Israel. And this is not a light-hearted barroom scene like Star Wars. Instead, if you look at chapter 2, verses 11, you'll see this. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. In other words, Micah is saying, you know what? The good prophet for you is someone who is a drunkard. What a serious, coarse, impolite people phrase to say. An accusation against God's people that they would be worthy of a drunkard as a pastor. That doesn't feel very comfortable. I grew up in a home where there was an abuse of alcohol. That doesn't feel very good. It's part of that prophetic role of bringing hard things to the people of God. It gets worse. Chapter 3 would be the violent gross-out scene. It would earn the Micah movie at least an R rating. If you look at it, it actually refers to situation of similar to Silence of the Lambs, eating human flesh, eating human bones. Micah chapter 3. If you look at the very beginning, verses 2 and 3. You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat for the pan. 
like flesh for the pot. Really. That's the gross out scene of violence. It's a hard message. Disturbing message. And yet it's the message that Micah carries to God's people. There's also the hope is lost scene at the end of chapter 3. And other parallels and movie scenes you might think of might be actually several of the Lord of the Rings movies, the, the, the right before Helm's Deep battle. Uh, just as things look lost, the standing at the black gate. And so you see in chapter 3 a sense of almost everything is lost. Chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion, Zion, Jerusalem, the holy place, will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. The holy place? A place so sacred to the people of Israel. I mean, their understanding of their relationship with God was through His covenant and His establishment of a place of worship. It will be plowed. It will be overgrown and lost. It's almost a reversal of the creation mandate where God's people are charged with tending the garden and overseeing the growth. But no, here it's reversed. Growth has overtaken God's place. All hope seems lost. It's a hard thing to see the people of God err. For years, decades, Micah conveys this message to the people of God. But he does not stop there. And the Micah message, the Micah movie, does not stop with hopelessness. Because there is a shift in chapter 4. When all hope seems lost, what happens? In chapter 4, it's the mountaintop scene. It's the mountaintop scene, the mountain of the Lord. Verse 1 of Micah chapter 4, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. The mountain of the Lord, peoples will stream to it. Think about that, that process of streaming What happens with a stream? It flows downhill, doesn't it? But no, the book of Micah, the Micah message, the Micah movie will actually show rivers streaming uphill against gravity by divine intervention, by an amazing turn. It flows uphill. That word flow is used only one other place in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 51. And it talks about the rivers flowing into Babylon. But here, intentionally, God says there's something divine happening. That divine thing 
is that the peoples of the world will stream to the mountain of God. That's a mountaintop scene. Even a people that had been addressed so directly and so crudely, God will intervene. And indeed, it takes God. Another scene, the hero's humble background. You might think of scenes in Star Wars, learning about Luke Skywalker and the background, the subtext. And here in chapter 5, the scene of the humble background of the hero, Bethlehem, is introduced. Yes, in the humble backwater place of Bethlehem, the Savior will be born. The next scene is a summary montage, chapter 6. And that's where you have compressed into a very short period of time an expression of God's redemptive plan, his covenant. He has shown you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That ethical requirement of the kingdom of God and his redemptive plan is summarized in an amazing way in chapter 6. Chapter 7, final scene, it's the ocean sunset. It's the sense that God will bring completion to his people. Chapter 7, if you look at verses 18 through 20, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities. Where? Into the depths of the sea. All our iniquities into the depths of the sea. The courtroom scene, the barroom scene, the violent gross-out scene, the hope is lost scene, the mountaintop scene, the hero's humble background scene, the summation, but then the ocean scene. That for those who are broken and sinful, my sins are hurled into the depths of the sea. It's an intentional reference to the people of God, of Pharaoh's army, which is alluded to in chapter 6, that just as Pharaoh's army was destroyed by the sea, so our sins will be destroyed, hurled. Micah the prophet, God's people in the age of AIDS. We've talked about Micah the person, Micah the movie. The Micah, the implications. What does this mean for us? Well, are you convinced that repentance is needed in the church? Or is everything just fine? Are you convinced that our act is fully together? I don't know about you, but I've seen the impact in Africa, especially of the health and wealth prosperity gospel going forward. 
You've seen people in Africa watching the televangelists from North America import a false theology. It's not true. And we've imported it from the United States and from North America and from Europe. These are people who associate themselves as Christians. They call themselves people of God. And yet they preach a gospel that is not consistent with Scripture. Is there any lesson here in the fact prophets spoke primarily to God's people, not to the outside nations? I believe there's a message here for you. But is it worth the risk? It's hard to be a prophet. It's hard to pay the price, and yet if you believe it, then you will make that sacrifice. A few years ago, my wife and I read the book John Adams by David McCulloch. It's a fabulous biography. And you get a sense as you read that biography of the sacrifices that they made as a family. February of 1777, John Adams sets sail dangerously across the Atlantic Ocean to go seek the help of France in our Revolutionary War. He takes 10-year-old John Quincy Adams with him. They dodge British ships, knowing that if they're captured, they will be executed. They land on the coast of Europe, I believe in Spain, and they have to walk all the way to France. They took risks, but they believed in the cause of liberty. But there was a price, too. The upside, John Quincy Adams, future President of the United States, outstanding Secretary of State. But there was the younger brother, Charles, who died as an alcoholic, an absent father. It's tough. Is it worth 52 years? Is it worth 52 years pouring your heart into something, a message? Because sometimes the listeners don't respond immediately. If the message is true, if it's what God has called you to do, if you're willing to be accountable for what you have seen, in the field, in Asia, Africa, Latin America, other places that you've served in the Middle East? Is it worth being accountable? I believe that many of you will identify with Micah of Morasheth. Your eyewitnesses to situations, to places of incredible e- Need the age of AIDS. What will you do to that? What will you do with that? Just go overseas and do your good work there? Or has God given you a prophetic opportunity here for the church? I would ask for you to count that cost even as we think again 
as we did at the beginning. The fact that none of us is perfect, though our sins be as scarlet, yes, absolutely. But they shall be as white as snow. How did that happen? The cross of Christ. One who bore our pain for us. Is it worth being accountable to him? Is it worth reflecting his character? Is it worth communicating who he is? Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Yes. I didn't realize that was what I signed up for. became a Christian between my 7th and 8th grade year. And the journey I've been on is that, yes, the price for being a prophet is high, but it doesn't come near to the price that was paid by my Savior Jesus. He will empower you and strengthen you in your prophetic roles. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you for who you have called into this room, an amazing set of people who love you, who follow you, who serve you, who make sacrifice. who risk. And I ask that you might encourage them and challenge them to be prophetic in their circles of influence. To stand even when it's difficult to stand. We need your grace to accomplish this we cannot in our human flesh and this we pray in the name of Jesus Amen Brothers and sisters um, my understanding is that tomorrow you will receive a commitment card and I think this will be explained more uh, tomorrow but even tonight Be thinking about the commitments that God is calling you to make for being here at this conference. Uh, You've heard different speakers. You've been in different breakout sessions. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is not going to leave the opportunity of being here together unused. Tonight, even this evening, before you go to bed, just begin thinking what God would have you do. The conference takes you through a process of learning, of praying. And as you go, as you think through support, be praying what God would have you do. And tonight, I would just, uh, as we dismiss, ask you to stand, and I would love to just give you a word of benediction as we As we depart, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for you, 
empower you and equip you and enthuse you with carrying His word of forgiveness to the world. Go in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.